Chapter One of Rebel Spurs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas. Rebel Spurs by Andre Norton. Chapter One. Even the coming of an autumn dusk could not subdue the color of this land. Shadows here were not gray or black. They were violet and purple. The crumbling adobe walls were laced by strings of crimson peppers, vivid in the torch and lantern light. It had been this way for days, red and yellow, violet, colors he had hardly been aware, existed back in the cool green-silver-gray-brown of Kentucky. So this was Tubacca. The rider shifted his weight in the saddle and gazed about him with watchful interest. Back in 59, this had been a flourishing town, well on its way to prominence in the southwest. The mines in the hills behind producing wealth, the fact that it was a watering place on two cross-country routes, the one from Tucson down into Sonora of Old Mexico, the other into California, had all fed its growth. Then the war, the withdrawal of the army, the invasion of Sibley's Confederate forces, which had reached this far in the persons of Howard's Arizona Rangers, and most of all the raiding, vicious, deadly, and continual by Apaches and outlaws, had blasted Tabaca. Now, in the fall of 1866, it was a third of what it had been, with a ragged fringe of dilapidated adobes crumbling back into the soil. Only this heart-core was still alive in the dusk. Smell, a myriad of smells, some to tickle a flat stomach, others to wrinkle the nose. Under the rider the big stud moved, tossed his head, drawing the young man's attention from the town back to his own immediate concerns. The animal he rode, the two he led were, at first glance, far more noticeable than the dusty rider himself. His saddle was cinched about the barrel of a big gray colt, one that could not have been more than five years old, but showed enough power and breeding to attract attention in any horse-conscious community. Here was a thoroughbred of the same blood, which had pounded racetracks in Virginia and in Kentucky to best all comers. Even now, after weeks on the trail, with a day's burden of alkali dust grimed into his coat, the stud was a beautiful thing, and his match was the mare, on the lead rope, plainly a lady of family, perhaps the same line, since her coat was also silver. She crowded closer, nickered plaintively. She was answered by an anxious bray from the fourth member of the party. The mule bearing the trail pack was in ludicrous contrast to his own aristocratic companions. His long head, with one entirely limp and flopping ear, was grotesquely ugly, his carcass beneath the pack a bone rack, all sharp angles and dusty hide, looks, however, as his master could have proven, were deceiving. So, the rider's voice was husky from swallowing trail grit, but it was tuned to the soothing croon of a practiced horse trainer. So, lady, just a little farther now, girl. 
From the one-story building on the rider's right, a man emerged. He paused to light a long Mexican cigarillo, and as he held the match to let the sulfur burn away, his eyes fell upon the stallion. A casual interest tightened into open appreciation as he stepped from under the porch overhang into the street. "'That is some horse, sir.' His voice was that of an educated gentleman. The lantern at the end of the porch picked out the fine ruffled linen of his shirt, the vest with a painted design of fighting cocks, and the wink of gold buttons. The rather extravagant color of his clothing matched well with the town. I think so. The answer was short and yet not discourteous. Again the mayor voiced her complaint, and the rider turned to the gentleman. There's a livery stable here, sir. Unconsciously, he reverted, in turn, to the rather formal speech pattern of another place and time. The man in the painted vest had transferred his attention from the stallion to the mare. Yes, quick as way is down this alley. Toby Kells owns it. He's a tolerable vet, too. She's near her time, ain't she? Yes. The rider raised one finger to the straight wide brim of his low-crowned black hat. He was already turning his mount when the townsman added, No hotel here, stranger, but the Four Jacks serves a pretty good meal and keeps a couple of beds for overnighters. You're welcome back when you've settled the little lady. She Virginia stock? Kentucky, the rider answered, and then his lips tightened into a compressed line. Was it a mistake to admit even that much? He would have to watch every word he said in this town. He tugged gently at the lead rope and walked Shiloh ahead at a pace which did not urge Shadow to any great effort. The mule croaker fell in behind her so that they were strung out in the familiar pattern which had been theirs clear from Texas. Minutes later her owner was rubbing down the fretful Shadow, murmuring the soothing words to quiet her. The lean, gray-haired man, who had ushered them into the stable, stood eyeing the mayor's distended sides. "'I'd say, young fella, you didn't get here a mite too soon. No siree. She's due right quick. Carrying a blood foal, I'm thinking.' "'Yes, how soon? Tonight?' Toby Kells made a quick examination. The mayor, after a first nervous start, stood easily under his sure and gentle hands. "'Late, maybe.' First foal? Yes. Her owner hesitated and then added, You give me a hand with her? You bet, son. She's a pretty thing, and she's been a far piece, I'd say. Now you look here, boy. You sure look like you could take some currying and corn fodder under your belt, too. You get over to the Four Jacks. Topham's got him a Chinee cook in there who serves up the best dang grub in this here town. Fill up your belly and take some ease. Then if we do have this little lady getting us up tonight, you'll be ready for it. I'll see to the stud and the mule. The colt's not a wild one. Kell surveyed Shiloh knowingly. No, I seed he was gentle trained when you come in. He ran his hand down Shiloh's shoulder, touching the brand. Spur R. That ain't no outfit I heard tell of before. From Eastern Texas. That much was true. All three animals had been given the brand in the small Texas town where the wagon train had assembled, 
and perhaps this was a time when he should begin building up the background one Drew Kirby must present to Tobacco, Arizona Territory. All right, I'll go eat. He picked up his saddlebags. You'll call me if... Sure, son, say, I don't rightly know your name. Drew Kirby. Well, sure, Kirby. Toby Kells is a man of his word. If and there's any reason to think you'll be needed, I'll send Callie along for you. Callie? At Kells' hail, a boy swung down the loft ladder. He was wiry thin, with a thick mop of sun-bleached hair and a flashing grin. At the sight of Shiloh and Shadow he whistled. Now ain't they the purtiest things, he inquired, of the stable at large. About the best stock we've had here since the last time Don Cazar brought in a couple of hisen. Where'll I put your plunder, mister? He was already loosening Croker's pack. You'll be staying over at the Jacks? Drew glanced up to the haymow from which Callie had just descended. Any reason why I can't bunk up there, he asked Kells. None tall, Kirby, none tall. No, you'll want to be handy, like. Stow that there gear up there, Callie, and don't drop nothing. Rest yourself easy, son. These here horses is going to be treated just like the good stuff they is. Croker also. Drew stopped by the mule, patted the long nose, gave a flip to the limp ear. He's good stuff, too, served in the cavalry. Kell studied the young man by the mule. Cavalry saddle on the stud. Two Colt pistols belted high and butt forward. And that military cord on his hat. Army boots, too. The liveryman knew the signs. This was not the first veteran to drift into Tobacco and he wouldn't be the last, either. Seems like half of both them armies back east didn't want to go home and sit down peaceful-like now that they was through with shooting at each other. No siree. A right big herd of em was trailing out here. And he thought he could put name to the color of the coat this young'un had had on his back, too. Only asking more than a man volunteered to tell, that weren't neither manners nor wise. He gets the best, too, Kirby. Kell shifted a well-chawed tobacco cud from one cheek to the other. He could trust Kells, Drew thought. A little of his concern over Shadow eased. He shouldered the saddlebags and made his way back down the alley, beginning to see the merit in the liveryman's suggestion. Food and a bath. What he wouldn't give for a bath. Hay to sleep on was fine. He had had far worse beds during the past four years. But a hot bath, to be followed by a meal, which was not jerky, cornmeal, bitter coffee of trail cooking. His pace quickened into a trot, but slackened again as he neared the four jacks and remembered all the precautions he must take in Tobacco. In the big room of the cantina, oil lamps made yellow pools of light. The man in the painted vest was seated at a table, laying out cards in a complicated pattern of solitaire game. At one side, a round-faced Mexican in ornate, south-of-the-border clothing, held a guitar across one plump knee, and now and then plucking absent-mindedly at a single string as he stared raptly into space. A third man stood behind the bar, polishing thick glasses. 
Greetings. As Drew stood blinking just within the doorway, the card player rose. He was a tall, wide-shouldered man, a little too thin for his height. Deep lines in his clean-shaven face bracketed his wide mouth. His curly hair was silver-blonde, and he had dark, deeply-set eyes. I'm Reese Toppin, owner of this oasis, he introduced himself. Drew Kirby. He must remember that always. He was Drew Kirby, a Texan schooled with kinfolk in Kentucky, who served in the war under Forrest and was now drifting west, as were countless other rootless Confederate veterans. Actually, the story was close enough to the truth, and he had had months on the trail from San Antonio to Santa Fe, then on to Tucson, to study up on any small invented details. He was Drew Kirby, Texan, not Drew Rennie of Red Springs, Kentucky. For a man just off the trail, Kirby, the Four Jacks does have a few of the delights of civilization. A bath? One of Topham's dark eyebrows, so in contrast with his silver hair, slid up inquiringly, and he grinned at Drew's involuntary but emphatic nod. One of nature's gifts to our fair city is the hot springs. Hamilcar. His hand met the top of the table in a sharp slap. The Mexican jerked fully awake and looked around. From the back of the cantina emerged a middle-aged Negro. Yes, Mr. Reese, sir. Customer for you, Hamilcar. I would judge he wants the full treatment. This, Mr. Kirby, is the best barber, valet, and general aide to comfort in town, the sultan of our bath. Hamilcar, Mr. Kirby would like to remove the layers of dust he has managed to pick up. Good luck to you both. Drew found himself laughing as he followed Hamilcar to the rear of the building. Topham had reason to be proud of his bath, Drew admitted some time later. A natural hot spring might be the base of luxury, but man's labor had piped the water into stone slab tubs and provided soap and towels. To sit and soak was a delight he had forgotten. He shampooed his unkept head vigorously and allowed him to forget all worries, wallowing in the sheer joy of being really clean again. Hamilcar produced a clean shirt and drawers from the saddlebags, even managed to work up a shadow of shine on the scuffed cavalry boots and had beat the worst of the trail dust from the rest of the traveler's clothing. Drew had redressed, except for his gun belt, when he heard a voice call from the next cubicle. Ham, ham, get yourself in here, for I skin that black hide. Johnny, Topham's voice cut through the other's thick slur. You soak that rock gut out of you and mind your tongue while you do it. Sure, sure, Reese. The voice was pitched lower this time, but to Drew the tone was more mocking than conciliatory. Drunk or sober, that stranger did not hold very kindly thoughts of Topham, but that was none of a Kentuckian's business. Your hat, sir. Hamilcar brought in the well-brushed headgear, much more respectable-looking than it had been an hour ago. The cord on it glistened, army issue, brave gold bullion, made for a general's wearing. Drew straightened it, remembering. Sergeant Rennie of the Scouts, in from an independent foray into enemy-held Tennessee, 
reporting to the old man himself, General Bedford Forrest, and Forrest saying, We don't give medals, Sergeant, but I think a good soldier might just be granted a birthday present without anyone getting too excited about how military that is. Then he had jerked the cord off his own hat and given it to Drew. It was something big to remember when you were only nineteen and had been soldiering three years. Three years with a dogged army that refused to be beaten. That hat cord, the spurs on his boots, they were all he had brought home from the war. Save a tough body and a mind he hoped was as hard. Mighty pretty hat trimming that, sir, Hamilcar admired. Mighty big man wore it once. Drew was still half in the past. What do I owe you more than thanks of a mighty tired man you've turned out brand new again? He smiled and was suddenly all boy. Four bits, sir, and it was a pleasure to do for a gentleman. It truly was. Come again, sir, come again. Drew went down the corridor, his spurs answering with a chimming ring each time his heels met planking. Worn at Chapultepec by a Mexican officer, they had been claimed as spoils of war in 47 by a Texas ranger, and in 61 the ranger's son, Anson Kirby, had jingled off in them to another war. Then Kirby had disappeared during that last scout in Tennessee, vanishing into nowhere when he fell wounded from the saddle, smashing into a bushwhacker's hideout. On Sunday in May of 65, back in Gainesville, when Forrest's men had finally accepted surrender and the deadness of defeat, a Union trooper had wore those spurs in the church, and Boyd Barrett had sold his horse the same day to buy back those silver bits because they knew what they meant to his cousin Drew. Now here Drew was, half the continent away from Gainesville in Tennessee, wearing Anse's spurs and half of Anse's name, to find a father he had not known was alive until last year. The Kentuckian was sure of only one thing right now. He was not going to enter a town or a stretch of country where Hunt Rennie was the big man and claimed to be Rennie's unknown son. Maybe later he could come to a decision about his action, but first he wanted to be sure. There might well be no place for a Drew Rennie in Hunt Rennie's present life. They were total strangers, and perhaps it must be left that way. There was no reason for him to claim the kinship. He was independent. Drew Kirby had a mule and two good horses, maybe three by tomorrow. Aunt Mariana had insisted that he accept part of the Maddock estate, even though his Kentucky grandfather had left him penniless. He'd made his choice without hesitation. The colt Shiloh, the mare Shadow, and she bred the storm cloud for what should be a prize foal. His aunt had made him take more, gold in his money belt, enough to give him a start in the West. He was his own man, not Rennie's son, unless he chose. Two more lamps had been lighted in the cantina. Drew sat down at a table. There was a swish of full skirts, and he looked up at a girl. She smiled, as if she liked what she saw of this brown-faced stranger, with quiet, disciplined features and eyes older than his years. You like, senor, tequila, whiskey, food? Food, senorita. You see a most hungry man. 
She laughed and then frowned anxiously. Ah, but, senor, this is a time when the cupboard is, as you would say, bare. When the wagons come, then what a difference. Now, tortillas, frijoles, maybe some fruit, sweet for the tongue like wine in the throat, perhaps an egg. To me that is a feast. Drew fell into the formal speech which seemed natural here. You see one who has done his own trail cooking too long. Ah, El Perbete, poor man, surely there will be an egg. She was gone, and Drew began covertly to study the other men in the room. In any western town the cantina or saloon was the meeting place for masculine society. Even if Hunt Rennie did not appear bodily in the Four Jacks tonight, Drew could pick up information about his father merely by keeping open ears. As far away as Santa Fe, he had heard of Rennie's range, and Don Cazar, the name the Mexican had given its owner, Hunt Rennie. Escaped from a Mexican prison in 1847, believing his wife and the son he had never seen to be dead, Hunt Rennie had gone west. In contrast to the tragedy of his personal life, whatever Rennie had turned his hand to in the new territory had prospered. A prospector he had grub-staked found the Aura Cruz, one of the richest mines in the Tubaca Hills. Rennie owned two freighting lines, one carrying goods to California, the other up from Sonora, and his headquarters in the fertile Santa Cruz Valley was a ranch which was also a fort, a fort even the Apaches avoided after they had suffered two overwhelming defeats there. That was Rennie's range, cultivated fields, fruit orchards, manadas of fine horses. Don Cazar supplied Tucson and the army posts with vegetables and superb hams. He had organized a matchless company of Pima Indian scouts after the army pulled out in 61, had fought Apaches, but had sided with neither Union nor Confederate forces. During the war years, he had more or less withdrawn within the borders of the range, offering refuge to settlers and miners, fleeing Indian attacks. Don Cazar was a legend now, and a man did not quickly claim kinship with a legend. Want a room, Kirby? Topham paused beside his table. No, I have to stay close to the mare. Yes, I can understand that. Kells is good with horses, so you needn't worry. Ever race that colt of yours? Not officially. Drew smiled. There was that lieutenant with the supply wagons. The man hadn't talked so loudly about Johnny Rebs after Shiloh showed his heels to the roan the soldiers had bragged up. This is a sporting town when the wagons come in, and they're due tomorrow. Johnny Shannon just rode in to report. Might be some racing. You aim to stay on in Tabaka? Have to wait until Shadow can trail again. How's the prospect for a job? With cattle, horses, teaming? Horses, I guess. Well, Don Cazar, Rennie, runs the best manadas. You might hit him for work. He'll be riding in to meet the wagons. Carmesita, did you bring all that was left of the supplies? Topham's quizzical eyebrows lifted in a greeting to the waitress's loaded tray. I'd say, young man, that you are facing a full-time job now. 
getting all of that inside of you. Drew ate steadily, consuming eggs and beans, tortillas, and fruit. Topham joined three men at the next table, substantial town citizens. Drew judged. The owner of the cantina raised his glass. Gentlemen, I give you another successful trading trip. Saw Johnny ride in, one of the men returned. Kid seems to be settling down, ain't he? That ought to be good news for Rennie. One believes in reformations when they are proven by time, Senor Cahill. The man wearing rich but somber Spanish clothing replied. It sure must go hard with a man to have a son turn out a wild one, commented the third. Drew's cup was at his lips, but he did not drink. Whose son? Rennie's? No son by blood, that much comfort, Don Cazar has. But foster ties are also strong, and the boy is still very young. A rattler with one button on the tail carries as much poison as a ten-button one. Rennie ought to cut losses and give the kid the boot. The way he's going, he could involve Hunt in a real mess, Cahill said. You are Don Cazar's good friend, Don Reese, his compadre of many years. Can you not do something? Don Lorenzo, all men have blind spots, and Johnny Shannon is Rennie's. Bob Shannon helped free Hunt out of the Mex prison in the war and was killed doing it. Soon as Hunt sat up here, he sent for the boy and tried to give him a father. It's a great pity he has no child of his own blood. I have seen him stand here in Tabaca giving toys and candy to the little ones. Yet he has only this wild one under his roof, and perhaps that Juanito will break his heart in the end. Drew put down his cup. It was very hard not to turn and ask questions. Dropping some coins on the table, he rose and started back to the stable, to the world of Shiloh and Shadow, where he was unable to betray Drew Rennie. But there was so much Drew Kirby must learn, and soon. End of Chapter One